Rising Fridays in Vermont, where we have replicated That's the full right. Rising set in Vermont, a la Nathan Fielder. I'm kidding. Ryan Grimm is actually back here in Washington, D.C. for today's edition of Rising Fridays, and I could just not be more excited. Ryan, how does it feel to be back in D.C.? Well, it's an... It's a fun time to be in Washington because <laughs> Dark Brandon is just on an absolute <laughs> rampage. I mean, think about everything that this guy is getting done. What's so funny, actually, is, you know, o Obama comes in, obviously brilliant with a, with a, with a movement behind him, mm -hmm. like the, a global movement behind him, like the hopes of the world on his shoulders. <laughs> yeah. He's come immediately just falls to pieces. And, you know, decides that they're actually not going to do anything because uh, they're going to spend the first year working with Republicans. Uh, they're going to adopt Mitt Romney's health care plan and see if they can, like, get a bunch of Republicans to agree with that. They're going to keep the stimulus too small because you don't want a big sticker shock to the American public. And he winds up with, uh, you know, Obamacare. Mm -hmm. uh, now, Joe Biden comes in. But you're, so, you're 175 years old. <laughs> Well, the hopes of the world not on his shoulders. No. no. The Hope, disappointment no. on the world arguably on his shoulders. I mean, the, the world was glad that they, he got rid of Trump. And right. people were like, all right, your, your job is done here. Right. Like, you've done your thing. And, and nobody expected anything right. from him after that. And it's just been bizarre to watch him just rack up accomplishment after accomplishment, including making Obamacare, like, much less bad. Well, I, I was going to ask you about that because you, Ryan has like an actual list that he wants yes. to read off and get reaction from. But just because we started on the Obama points, and I think it's mm -hmm. a fair sort of comparison, but there's Obamacare, there's Dodd-Frank. Part of your list, and spoiler alert, um, is getting closer on the Iran deal. Mm -hmm. It's an Obama-era policy. True. Um, so he got a few things done. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. not, not from my perspective, but right. in terms of like legislative uh, accomplishments or progress, DACA, you could argue, which was not legislative, mm -hmm. but you could argue that that was a big Obama priority that he accomplished. Right. And you can see some of this in a continuum in an interesting way. So, right, he, he tries uh, comprehensive immigration reform. They get really close yeah, in 2013 do. or so. Uh, you had a lot of Republicans who were playing ball at that time. And, you know, and then they decide that they're not going to play ball anymore, and, and so that completely falls apart. And then you do that by executive action. Uh, he, the Iran deal, also, you know, his, his most significant foreign policy achievement, that was also, of course, just an executive thing that he did, you know, with Iran and the other five countries that were involved in that. O Obamacare, right, the, the best argument people made for it at the time was that this is something. Like, this is getting the government to take some responsibility for the, the health care crisis in our country. There's 80 million uninsured people. We need to do something about this. And even if, we didn't, even if we're only insuring 20 or 25 million, at least it's a step in the right direction. And yeah, and now Biden has expanded these subsidies, which will go for another three years and probably continue to be expanded. But we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see, extended. That makes it so that if you live in this country now, uh, you can get affordable health care. It's, it's not great. Uh, the deductibles are going to be high. Uh, the, pre, the, premiums, the premiums are high. But this extra subsidy that was in the American Rescue Plan and then included again in the IRA caps what you're going to pay to, to a degree that where you're not going to see the sticker shock that people had before. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting point that it led, Obama got it started. And then you had this kind of significant transformation of the party which, which then enabled 
this new administration right, against its it will and its nature. Like this isn't Biden's nature to then start expanding things. So what's your list? Take us to the list. What well, let's see. It? What do we got here? He has a dark Brandon yes, list. We got the dark, <laughs> dark, well, so the, we're going to talk with Sheeta Parsi later in the show about the Iran deal, which is apparently very close to coming together, uh, which, ha which is creating ripples all around the world in right. interesting ways that will make you sound like a conspiracy theorist if you talk about it kind of too <laughs> speculatively. But uh, so he'll, he'll be here because uh, so Iran has dropped it, you know, one of its last demands. So it seems like they're on their way now to getting that done. Obviously, we say he expanded Obamacare last week, signs the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, student debt, 10,000 canceled, 20,000 if you're on Pell Grants, and then also reformed the, the repayment structure for basically everybody else so that you're not going to pay more than 5% of your discretionary income. So you're, it, it's doing what American reform does is it takes a barbaric system and instead of replacing it with something kind of compassionate and sensible, it replaces it with something that's slightly less barbaric. So the system's still terrible, but it's less barbaric for people. If, if, if you're capped at 5% of your discretionary income, like that's, that's bearable. So you, you can survive on that. And then uh, he did a couple interesting things in the Inflation Reduction Act. One, Supreme Court, if you remember a couple months ago, said Clean Air Act does not cover the clean power plan, does not cover carbon. So you can't do, you can't, they, they hadn't even put their new rule in place yet, but the Supreme Court preemptively said you can't do this. Mm -hmm. So they, and they made a statutory argument that the statute says you, that you can't do this. Right. So they wrote a new law, the IRA, and wrote in the statute, hey, guess what, you can. Wait, so you're saying the, the uh, originalist Supreme Court successfully forced Congress yes. to do its job. Yes, they did. Well, there, there you go. go. Now, we'll see how originalist and, and, and uh, textualist they actually are, because now the text is right in front of their face. Right. And it's going to be, now they're going to have to look for some other reason to strike it down, because it's going to say, hey, your, your decision's wrong, like the clean power plan is constitutional, I mean, it, it is statutorily per, uh, permitted by the Clean Air Act. Yeah. And if it's unclear, we just made it clear. Now, the Voting Rights Act was clarified in, uh, what, 2007? It was Sounds like re-upped in 2007, yeah, and then uh, Roberts struck it down in like 2013, claiming that it was a law from the 1960s, which was an obvious lie. Like it had, been, it had passed Congress in a reauthorization just a few years earlier. So it's not beyond these textualists to just lie, but it's, it's, been done, it's been done directly in response to their ruling. And the other thing they did, which uh, was impressive, Schumer put into the IRA that if there is debt relief in the future, you will not get a tax bill for that. Because that was one of the big problems with just unilaterally by executive action. Do, let's say you do a $10,000 tax bill. Now, boom, all of a sudden, you owe $3,000 mm -hmm. come April. Right. And people are going to like, ugh, I don't have $3,000. Right. I could pay $10,000 over the next 15 years, but I don't have $3,000 in April. Yeah. And so now, they wrote into the IRA you don't, that, that that's forgiven, that tax bill is forgiven, which is just a startling degree of competence. <laughs> <laughs> We're not used to seeing from Democrats in Washington. Wait, oh. thinking ahead? A plan? 
So yeah, it's a it's a novel concept. Um, but so we're in the waning days of August here in a midterm election cycle that because of the economy is not great for the president's party. At least the conditions historically are not going to make for great midterms. Mm -hmm. um, and polling throughout the year showed that was likely to be the case. It's the race has narrowed, which is something that's not unusual to happen in the sort of hazy summer days. And then fall comes. All the money goes into these races. Democrats here in Washington, D.C. feel like they do have the wind at their back. Mm -hmm. We've seen the White House actually in all seriousness, using the dark brand and memes, yes. um, clearly celebrating what they're surprised. Yeah. And it sounds like you're also surprised to see as a lot of legislative accomplishments. Here's my counter. Uh, mm -hmm. Like if I, when I looked at your list, and so maybe we can put it back up there, what I see is a lot of climate. Um, and I'm not sure that that's going to be pitched easily as a win to a huge swath of the country. Definitely the left, uh, the base of the mm -hmm. Democratic Party, the, the left, uh, the, the activist base, absolutely. Uh, chips, 100% will give you, uh, even though I think it got diluted uh, yeah. to a, an unfortunate degree. But the Inflation Reduction Act is a fascinating example because it's called the Inflation Reduction Act after, you know, even as like Vox and liberal economists will admit, Biden's stimulus um, was a source of inflation. Our inflation is worse than countries uh, in the OECD with similar economies. And there is plenty of evidence to suggest that Biden's spending actually worsened inflation. And so the Inflation Reduction Act, that is, is not going to have a meaningful effect on inflation, at least in the near term, by most studies. Um, it's in and of itself, it's sort of like, so he's he's throwing money at a problem that he threw money at. <laughs> it's like, it, yeah. that he caused in some way or, or worsened significantly in some way. Um, and to your point about student loan debt, I think it's really tragic because what I see is not just student loan debt forgiveness, it's the bankrupting of kids down the lines because universities now have no incentive to rein in their cost. And I saw you, you were tweeting with Robbie and you said, well, that's like saying we can't legalize weed now until we fix hmm. the entire system. My counterpoint to that would be this is immediately going to have an effect on the co cost of college. This is immediately going to make college less affordable for the kids who are enrolling right now and the kids enrolling next year and the years after it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think there's a fairness question. I'll talk about that a little bit in my radar. Absolutely, I agree with most people on the right. Um, when it comes to that, I think it's going to be helpful for Republicans. But to your point, if we're asking, if, if the question is, has Biden suddenly developed the sort of mojo to enact his agenda and get stuff done, the answer is clearly yes. He's feeling it. He's feeling, yeah. he's feeling something. I was, yeah, I was tell, I was saying last night on Twitter that he ought to just do do marijuana next. Like do like do weed if you, if he do, if he <laughs> takes weed out of schedule 1 in like September or October, somebody called it dank Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they could actually hold the house cuz like the momentum is is good for them, but it's not quite enough to hold the house because of the structural uh, uh, obstacles that they're up against. But because they're going to, you know, they're, but there are going to be a lot of races decided by you know, thousand, two thousand, three thousand votes. Definitely, you get ten thousand weed heads out there on election day who are just grateful for that in each district. We're also talking about executive action then, it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, in executive action on tuition, on potentially on weed. Uh, you know, I think some of this probably speaks to uh, a precedent that we really saw. I mean, we could talk about war power, certainly under Bush and before that. But when you're talking about like legislation becoming executive action um, and talking about the Obama, the Obama era persisting into the Biden era, see, that's, that momentum certainly started with Obama and DACA, as we were talking about before. Yeah. 
Do it, Dank Brandon. <laughs> dank Brandon. You, you got to get a Dank Brandon shirt. Dank Brandon, that's right. <laughs> All right, we'll have more rising. We'll tell you what's on our radars actually up next. Emily, what's on your radar? Well, uh, we're talking a lot about stimulus-induced inflation and student loan debt, but very little about the human faces of this economy. The mom who still can't find baby formula, the family forced to resort to food banks, the man who went into the military to pay for college instead of borrowing, the woman putting off marriage until she can pay off her student loan debt. A wildly under-discussed problem in the American economy and culture is, as Nicholas Eberstadt puts it, men without work. Eberset released a book with that title back in 2016 and is releasing next week an updated version that crunches some of the numbers post-pandemic. Quote, we've got this situation now, he told the Wall Street Journal this week, where we've had roughly speaking 11 million unfilled jobs since last Labor Day, since last September 2021, and employers are screaming for workers. They're begging for workers, and there are millions and millions and millions of men and women who are sitting on the sidelines, not coming back into the economy at a time when workers have more bargaining power than in living memory. Zeroing in on men, Eberstadt explained, for every prime age guy who's unemployed, there are over four who are neither working nor looking for work. We have this unworking army of over seven million prime age men in the United States today. Now, about nine-tenths of that group, according to Eberstadt, have, quote, basically dropped out of the labor economy. What's worse, BLS statistics that Eberstadt reviewed found, quote, these labor force dropouts basically don't do civil society. They don't do worship, they don't do charity, they don't do volunteering work, they don't do much help around the house with other people or housework, they don't get out of much house, get out of the house that much, they say. What they say they do is watch screens, he said, adding, and other information says about half of these guys report using some sort of pain medication every day, about half. Eberstadt, an economist at the American Enterprise Institute, believes formerly incarcerated men are a big part of the story, and unfortunately, he argues, there's something of a statistical blind spot, meaning we don't know enough about what happens to people after they're released from prison. This could be fodder for a great debate on Marx or Ayn Rand or even universal basic income, but much more importantly, it means right now, millions of men are getting by on very little, in so much pain, physical or mental, they're relying on drugs to make life bearable. This, even though, as Eberset points out, there are plenty of unfilled jobs. It's sort of men without work in 2016, now in 2022, work without men, as Eberset said. If we can bring the student loan conversation in for just a moment, bear in mind two numbers. First, average student loan debt is around $40,000. And second, according to Pew, as of December 2021, 41% of college graduate ages, graduates ages 22 to 27 were underemployed. That means their jobs don't require their degrees. So Big Ed as a special interest group is vigorously pushing a product with a terrible ROI, pouring money into the political system to preserve their grift and avoid reforms, all while politicians let them get away with it, and families desperately hoping to secure the American dream for themselves and their children borrow more and more. The whole system is unfair, let alone Biden's executive order. Marriage rates in the middle class are declining. Women are having fewer children than they say they want. Suicide attempts by young girls jumped 50% 
during the pandemic. The neoliberal political establishment, and especially the right, had a horrible dehumanizing habit for years of talking about people and workers like cogs in a machine. None of this is to say America's millions of sidelined men are failures because they aren't contributing to the economy. That's how some folks on the right or even the left might see it. Remember when Hillary Clinton bragged that the places where people voted for her had higher GDPs? Remember that? What Eberset highlights is not merely a dropping out of the workforce. He shows that BLS studies find the significant chunk of the adult male population is dropping out of civil society, period. Questions of productivity be damned. This economy and this culture is eroding our dignity. A 2017 Pew survey found roughly seven in 10 adults say it is very important for a man to be able to support a family financially to be a good husband or partner. That included seven in 10 men. People don't want to scrape by on stimulus checks, but it's a sad statement that screen time seems better than the alternative, whether it's getting a job or going to church or working on a volunteer basis in the community, playing rec sports, whatever it is. Meanwhile, one of the most powerful men in the world told Joe Rogan yesterday that, quote, in the future where you can use AR, VR, and teleport in the morning to the office and show up as a hologram, I think that's going to be pretty sweet, right? It will unlock a lot of economic opportunity for a lot of people. Imagine if you didn't have to move to some city that didn't have your values in order to be able to get all the economic opportunities. That would be awesome, Mark Zuckerberg said. Now, I'm extremely hostile to social media, as a lot of you probably know, but still remain open to the idea that the metaverse might have some reasonably scaled role in our future, whether we like it or not. But people meet their spouses at work. They meet their closest friends at work in some cases. They learn how to be a member of a community at work. If we take away that aspect, there's no civil society right now to fall back on in much of the country. There aren't bowling leagues anymore or active church communities. Foisting new tech on the country without a plan to bring any of that back is disgraceful. There's been a strong principle that when you destroy wetlands to build, you're disturbing the ecosystem and should offset that by replacing the wetlands that were destroyed. Companies operate on environmental principles like this, sincerely or otherwise, but we have no such expectation for companies plundering our social environment. We just let people retreat to the shadows, throw money at them every once in a while, and find new ways to numb ourselves as the social fabric tatters all around us. Right, in some ways this is a really easy critique to sort of sit back and make, to just say everything's broken, it's all a mess. But I do think in the context of uh, two sort of seemingly disparate things, Mark Zuckerberg talking about how great the metaverse is going to be. You can just be a hologram in a big city, but live out in the country with your family, even though how are you going to form a family if you're always a hologram and your experiences were more synthetic than in person. Um, and the student loan crisis, which has shown uh, just an abject failure of our government to perform a very, very basic function for decades. Um, when I think about those two things, it does seem entirely reasonable, in fact, to make this very easy critique and say, no, everything is completely broken and with consequences that we don't often think about. Yes. And so and I'm glad you mentioned the neoliberal establishment. The, the era of neoliberalism, starting in the 70s, so this is not just uh, Republicans, but mm -hmm. Reagan really supercharged it, you know, broke two things and, and did them together. They broke communities and they broke unions. And so in order to break the unions, often they would just up and move entire manufacturing plants and businesses first down south into right-to-work states like South Carolina and elsewhere. I was born in Allentown, and, the, and as, uh, as everything was packed up and shipped out of Allentown, first it went to South Carolina, other places in the south, 
And then once there became labor agitation there, then it went to Mexico and then eventually China and elsewhere around the world. And what that then does is it breaks the community. Mm -hmm. Like there's then yep. there's just and then what what fills it uh, are, like you said, despair, drugs, crime. And the only way I can see bringing that back is to restore community ecosystems, to restore unions, uh, the kind of just organic drive toward unionization around the country, just ch another Chipotle organized just yesterday, another REI, I think like you're, you're seeing it kind of all over the place. People, and this isn't, this isn't kind of the AFL-CIO from on high, like finally figuring out how yeah. to send organizers. It's people just Definitely organically coming together and, yeah. and forming unions. Those unions can give people camaraderie, can give people a sense of solidarity and, and purpose in what are otherwise just miserable miserable jobs. And so if, if, if you can sell that to people, say, hey, look, if, if you decide to come back into the labor force, you're going to be here with your brothers and sisters working uh, as, as comrades toward a, toward a common goal, then you have a sense of purpose. And if you can then uh, prevent a new neoliberal swing from you know, smashing that again, because you're already seeing, Ken Klippenstein's done some great reporting on this, you're already seeing companies saying publicly, we need higher unemployment yeah. because workers have too yep. much power right now. Mm -hmm. And we need to drive up the jobless rate so people are living in fear. Mm -hmm. And when they're living in fear, then they won't be able to organize unions. They won't be able to ask for days off. They won't be able to ask for better shifts. They won't be able to say, hey, how about uh, if you're going to ask me to work on the weekend, you tell me before Friday? Yeah. Well, no, it's, I mean, it's the exact same mentality, a different flavor of the same mentality. It was like, we're shutting down this Caterpillar factory, um, and mm -hmm. we're taking it to Mexico. We're taking it, we're, we're taking this factory to China. And I think there's a good argument that some of that happened because of the excesses of labor unions, that you, like there was some of that 100% um, that drove jobs to different countries. And it's also like what Reagan was reacting to were excesses in the great society that people were saying, these are problems for communities too. And I would much rather have a private sector union bargaining for health care than throwing subsidies at people, uh, taxpayer-funded subsidies at people to pay for a broken system without even fixing the system. Like, I would much rather have that. I think that is a great alternative. Um, but yeah, it, it seems like the great resignation is resetting things to yeah. a degree. But the, the work without men problem, where you have you know, jobs available, but because of these degree mismatches, you know, for whatever reason, people aren't taking them, that is an incredible right. statement, I think, on despair. Um, yeah. And when we look at numbers, when we look at stocks, the stock market being really high, and we say, oh, the economy's great, that's bullshit. That doesn't right. mean the economy's great at all. Right, yeah, corporate America blew up the labor force, then they salted the earth, and now they're surprised that nothing is growing. That's, that is a perfect yeah. way to put it. They're not restoring the wetlands. No, they're not, yeah. no, they're not, anyway. Looking forward to what's on your radar after this, Ryan. Ryan, what is on your radar this morning? Well, there's been an enormous amount of attention paid this week to the surprisingly strong Democratic win in New York's special election on Tuesday, and it's being called a bellwether because Republicans significantly underperformed Trump, and in order to win back the House, they have to do at least as well as Trump or better. Now, the media's attention, for understandable reasons, has been on this ad. When our country called, he served. Pat Ryan graduated from West Point and risked his life in combat. He fought for our families, for our freedom. And freedom includes a woman's right to choose. 
How can we be a free country if the government tries to control women's bodies? That's not the country I fought to defend. I'm Pat Ryan, and I approve this message because in Congress, I'll fight to protect all of our freedoms. Now, that's a powerful ad, and there's an obvious reason it resonated both with the public and with the media in the wake of uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And on Thursday, three more states, Idaho, Tennessee, and Texas, saw abortion bans go into effect. But half of Pat Ryan's ad spending went behind a different ad, similar to the kind I talked about in my radar last week, with Democrats taking the fight directly to corporate power and linking it to high prices. Here's the ad that played in rotation in the district. Big utility companies have a monopoly on our power, so they think they can do whatever they want. I'm Pat Ryan, and as Ulster County Executive, I use my power to hold greedy corporations accountable. Like when Central Hudson Utilities was ripping off our community. I called for an investigation and demanded they repay customers and freeze rate increases. I approve this message because big corporations have too much power. It's time our families had more. So fr friend of the show, Matt Stoller, commenting on the ad, called it, quote, straight up populism, adding the Republicans better hope this is an anomaly because because what Ryan is selling sells. Now, it may seem like easy pickings going after the local power utility. Pretty much everybody hates their utility. But that punch only lands if the candidate can throw it credibly. And Democrats who've been in the tank for corporate power can't very well stand up come election time and say now they're going to fight that corporate power. Nobody would buy it. But Ryan has a record in the area, and he alluded to it in that ad. He also pioneered a universal basic income program there. So people there know that he's serious. Now, too often, the only thing Democrats focus on is messaging. How are they going to message their way to victory in the next election? They sift through polls and do focus groups and stick to whatever message works best. But people aren't stupid. If your rhetoric doesn't match your record, you just look like another lying politician. If Pat Ryan had built his career with financial support from the local power company, like many Democrats and Republicans before him, it wouldn't have worked. For instance, when Bill Clinton took over both the White House and the Democratic Party, he did so by leaning into an alliance with corporate power. When his vice president, Al Gore, tried to run for president saying he'd fight corporate power, it landed pretty flat. Take a look. I will put our democracy back in your hands and get all the special interest money all of it out of our democracy by enacting campaign finance reform. I feel so strongly about this. I promise you that campaign finance reform will be the very first bill that Joe Lieberman and I send to the United States Congress. And people didn't buy it. And now, of course, Joe Lieberman is the founding chairman of the dark money group No Labels. Far from taking special interest money out of politics, No Labels shields the source of private equity and hedge fund money looking for a secret way into politics to push for tax breaks and gives it a gloss of good governance. Now, what that means for Democrats is they have to actually deliver when they're in power. And when it comes to picking candidates, they can't put their thumb on the scale in favor of a corporate Democrat because then that Democrat is going to be less electable in the general. Now, this is going to be very hard for Democratic consultants and leaders to get their heads around because for the last 40 years, moderate corporate Democrat was synonymous in their minds with electable. But that era is now over. Now, Pat Ryan is, I think, a particularly talented politician. Uh, and you could just tell, even just from those two ads, but people who are from that area have said that this is, 
he's kind of a rising star. Um, and you can't base your entire uh, strategy around stars because there aren't, there aren't enough of them <laughs> around the country to do it. Or personalities. Or personalities. Yeah. But the model that he's laying out here, uh, defending abortion rights on the one hand and then fighting corporate power on the other, that, that feels like a, an agenda that can get a majority support. Kind of reminds me of Jason Kander, who we've mm -hmm. talked about. I think you've interviewed him, uh, mm -hmm. talked about before. Uh, and that's where we have seen candidates like this sort of rise to the surface briefly, have these like really impressive messaging strategies. And then it doesn't seem like Democrats are ever able to adopt them on a more wide scale level, partially because of what you say, like personalities. Some personalities can pull different things off. And, you know, your average Joe, um, what's his name? Joe Crowley, for instance, right. literally your average. Joe right. might not be able to pull that off, despite being, I mean, Joe Crowley was fairly progressive. He just sort of aligned himself with the Democratic establishment uh, and leadership. And what's, I guess I'm curious how you think this can, this time, be legitimately translated. Is it money? Is it just a matter of the personalities not being able to carry a really good message? Or is it also that there's still too much money, mm -hmm. especially as the demographic of the Democratic voter switches to somebody that tends to be more educated and higher income? Um, is it that? Or is it an unwillingness to push this messaging? What, what could change that? I mean, one thing I've been told is that a lot of it is just muscle memory, mm. that, that Corporate power is not something that Democrats confront in a swing district. Like that's just like mm -hmm. it's just stated as fact. Like we don't do that. That's that's Ralph Nader. That's Bernie Sanders. That's AOC. Those people can talk about that. But in a swing district, we're gonna we're gonna do the things that Rahm Emanuel you know loved to do in 2006, 2008, whatever. Uh, but you also now have this class of consultants and strategists right. who are just complete mercenaries, <laughs> and whose job it is to win races and they're coming back with these polling numbers being like look this message really works like we're 40 points above water on if we attack corporate power if we say that you know we're we're, we're going to take on the meat packers for driving up uh, the price of poultry and the price of pork we're going to take on the oil companies uh, because they're drive they're they're price gouging when it comes to gas prices and the republicans won't because they're in the tank for big oil like this stuff is coming back in focus groups and, and in polling just resonating so intensely that these strategists and consultants are now, are now pitching hard to the two candidates, both the Senate and the House, saying, like, look, look use this. And one, one person said it's ironic because, like, most of the Democratic senators today, like, in 2006, uh, 12, 18, like, got into office, like, making that argument. Then the second they set foot in Washington... They forget that that's how they got there. Yeah. So they have to be retaught that, no, 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 this, is, this, is, this thing that brought you here, it, it works, and it works even better than it, than it used to. This reminds me a lot, um, actually, on the other side of Eric Cantor losing in that shocking race mm -hmm. to Dave Bratt, who was very much a sort of Tea Party wave candidate and embodied all of those sentiments. And the, the Tea Party messaging, which was despised by Republican leadership, bitterly despised yeah. by Republican leadership, was basically co-opted and then co-opted by the Republican establishment. Then they get a chance to vote on Obamacare, which they said repeal and replace, repeal and replace, repeal and replace mm -hmm. uh, for years and didn't actually do it. 
times one year. Or yeah, <laughs> right. And so this is this is a different question because corporate powers are all kind of aligned mm -hmm. in different directions on that. But is some of this because small dollar donations, Bernie, AOC, Trump have proved that you can make a ton of money without mm -hmm. relying on corporate donors to the same extent? That's not to say the Democratic establishment is just casting off their corporate right. benefactors. Um, but they, they is some of it because of that? They know yes. that you can get that money now? Yes, totally. Um, 2020, I think, was a real eye-opening year uh, for particular people like Chuck Schumer mm -hmm. in that in that respect, because it wasn't just Bernie in 2016 raising uh, 100-plus million dollars and then d doing you know double that in 2020. All of a sudden, all of these Senate candidates that uh, Schumer's responsible for getting elected had more money they can than they could spend. Uh, that bum they ran in Maine who, who lost to Susan Collins, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, she finished with $15 million in the bank account. Right. So money was no longer the problem mm. because every time uh, Trump said something obnoxious, you had a ton of these Democratic voters who weren't just now giving $27 to one person, Bernie Sanders. They were giving 25 or even $50 to every Senate candidate that Pod Save America was saying right, right. was electable. And they even gave like $20 million to Amy McGrath in Kentucky yep. just, just to have fun with like trolling Mitch McConnell and lose by 30 points. Exactly. And, and buy a bunch of votes for consultants in that, yep. in that race. But so all of a sudden it's like, oh, if we can keep these people pressing these $25 buttons, that is a much even more efficient way of raising money mm. than the 90s, 2000s way of a big dinner where people are paying $10,000 to get in. Because you have to organize the dinner. You got to do the invites. That you got to give the... Get, a, get the wine cave. You got to give internships mm. to the kids of these donors. Like the, the person who gives $25 to eight candidates, their kid's not asking Schumer for a, an internship or a yeah. phone call or a, or a photo or a regulation to be like, uh, you know, rescinded so that they can, you know, make a little extra money. They, they want them to take office and do things. Right. And now that's going to be a problem for them. Yeah, good luck with that. Right. But that's but that's but why, hey, yeah. you, as you yeah. said in They've the opening segment, Dark Brandon is on a roll Dark for the Brand, left. Dark Brandon. And that's why. He's, he's feeding these donors. Hey, that, that is a really interesting point um, and really interesting radar. We'll keep covering this, of course, and we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Emeritus professor at Harvard Law School and author of the new book, The Price of Principle, Alan Dershowitz joins us now to talk about his new book. Professor, welcome. Thank you so much. So one thing I uh, learned while reading this, this is your 50th book, which I thought was a staggering figure. Uh, well, I'm up to 51 now. I'm about halfway oh. through it. So I'm, I'm, I'm turning 84 next week. So my goal is 10 more. <laughs> ten, 10 more. So what, what's, the, what's the message? You, you've talked a lot publicly about your, your cancellation and how that, how that has affected you personally. And what, what, what is the message that you're relaying in this one? that we've lost the idea that principles are important, that we've lost the idea that nonpartisan approaches to the Constitution are important, that today everything is get Trump. Um, I'm not a Trump supporter. I voted against him twice. I'm looking forward to an opportunity to vote against him a third time. But I demand that efforts to get him be, be consistent with the Constitution. They're trying to deny him the right to have a lawyer. Um, and the attack on me is part of that. I now get phone calls three o'clock in the morning from people threatening me and threatening my family. Um, I can't speak in the library. 
Um, my books aren't carrying in the library. Once I defended Trump, the library in Chilmark suddenly stopped carrying any of my books. They had 20 of my books before that I wrote nine cents and none were covered. So, you know, this is not about me. I have a thick skin. This is about my family. This is about the people who want to hear me speak. Uh, the hard left is engaging in, uh, in, in new McCarthyism, just McCarthyism. It's the way lawyers, civil liberties lawyers who defend the communists in the 1950s were treated and it's unacceptable. I'm going to fight back. Most people who are treated like this, just take it and go away. And my advice from many of my friends was just be quiet. It'll disappear. No, no, no. I care too much about the constitution. That's why I wrote my book, The Price of Principle. I'm fighting back. I name names. I talk about people. I talk about episodes. I talk about efforts to silence me. I will not be silenced. Yeah, and if you isolate to the to the Trump case, I think you'll find agreement. Um, especially, it's it's a story about the downfall of groups like the ACLU and the sentiment that used to back. You've been affiliated with the ACLU going back years. Um, the, the sentiment and the American sentiment that used to back groups like the ACLU. The book is also though uh, about cancellations over Trump, cancellations over Epstein. There's a sentence in your book. You say, "I challenge anyone to offer a substantive criticism of anything I did in either of those cases that weren't." criticism or cancellation. So sticking on the criticism point, you've said yourself that you regret accepting the Epstein case. You felt you were misled in 2005. If that's the case, does that not at least, at the, at the very least, warrant criticism that sort of you allowed yourself to believe that story? You told The New Yorker it amounted to, when you were taking it, only half a dozen accusers who were under the age that slipped through the cracks. And when you later learned the extent of this, you were shocked. You wrote to prosecutors in 2007 that Epstein, quote, never targeted minors. How could you have believed that with all the evidence that existed back then? The Palm Beach Post wrote in 2006, police interviewed five alleged victims and 17 witnesses. The report shows some of the girls said they had been instructed to have sex with another woman in front of Epstein, and one said she had direct intercourse with him. Basically, the question is, if you're challenging people to say, you know, there's no substantive criticism, but you also right. say that you regret taking the case, is that not sort of well, a realm of substantive criticism? I don't regret taking the case on principle ground. I would take it again today, uh, <clears throat> a comparable case. I'm sure John Adams regretted taking the case of the Boston Massacre people because people attacked him for it. Right. I only regret taking the case because of what's happened to my family. It was the right thing to do. Lawyers must take controversial cases. The more controversial, the more the defendant is hated, the more I'll take the case. I defended communists in the 50s, Nazis in the 70s. I defended uh, Ted Kennedy for driving off Chappaquiddick. I defended Bill Clinton. I've defended everybody who is Mike Tyson. I've defended uh, people who are controversial, O.J. Simpson. That's the right thing to do. There is no substantive criticism of that. The fact that I might have thought differently about it if I had known the facts at the time. I didn't know the facts at the time. At the time I took the Epstein case, his friends included the president of Harvard, the provost of Harvard, the man who decoded the genome. Some of the most important academics in the world were close to him. He had given money to Harvard. I had no idea, and none of these people had any idea about his private life. He kept it completely separate. So the only regret I have is what's happened to my family. I have no, no principled regret. Uh, from a principled point of view, everybody's entitled to a defense, and I will continue to provide defenses to everybody as long as the good Lord gives me the power to do so. So no, I did absolutely nothing wrong. It, well, and in the Epstein case, unlike the other cases that you just mentioned, that it actually 
drew you in. You yourself were um, were accused uh, by Virginia Giffray of of some misconduct. Yeah, but, How and do you nobody. No rational person believes that, uh, although it's part of the attack on on lawyers. I mean, her mm. own lawyer admitted to me in a tape recorded conversation that that she was wrong and there was no basis uh, for it. We have all the travel records that prove that she lied. Uh, she herself, you know, has lied over and over and over again. So she lied, Nobody she lied about everything or just lied about. Say it again. Did she say it again? She, she's a total liar. Everything she says is a lie or just the parts of what she said that have to do with how she accused you. Well, all I know is about me, and if she lied categorically about me, why should anybody believe anything she said about anybody? I have no idea whether anything else she said is true or false. She accused David Barak, George Mitchell. She accused Bill Richardson. She accused, uh, I mean, most significantly, she accused Al Gore. She said that Al Gore was on Epstein's island. Al Gore never met Epstein. In fact, her own lawyer was Al Gore's lawyer. Could have simply made a phone call, as we did, and find out Al Gore was never there. And yet for $160,000, <clears> she described in detail a dinner with Alan Tipple Gore. Totally, totally made up story. So there's nothing that she ever says that should be believed. Does that mean that nothing happened to her? No, maybe it did, but it should be proved by other evidence. Nobody should believe anything she ever said. She has a long history of lying. She lied about her age. She said she was 14 and 15 when she met Epstein. She was 17. Um, you know, everything out of her mouth has been a lie. And I, I'm not worried about that. There's a trial and at the trial we'll prove her long, long history of of lying and will prove that I couldn't have been anywhere near any of the places she said she had um, sex with me. But right. that will a trial. But people aren't canceling me for that. People are canceling me largely because of my defense well, of Trump, because of what CNN said, I said on the night I answered questions about Trump. So it's much more political than it is personal. I have led a completely honorable personal life, and nobody is going to be able to disprove that in any way. And I've led a completely honorable professional life, and I'm going to continue to do so. And if people criticize me, it's clearly because of who I represented. And I, and I want to I want to pick up on your point about the the travel records. And you you've said you've said right. in the past that you know she can't connect you in any way, any any That's sense that you uh, might have met before. I, I haven't heard you respond directly to this, and I wanted to give you a chance. There's sure. in in the travel records it says on December 11th, uh, 2000, the Epstein plane leaves Florida for New York City. You're living in right. New York at the time. Then on the next day, December 12th. The calendar says a 1.30 meeting with, quote, Jeff. We don't know what Jeff yeah. that is. People could speculate. And then at 12.13, on December 13th, the next day, it says 10 a.m. scheduled a massage with A.D., uh, presumably Alan Dershowitz. Uh, 14th, the plane well, leaves. That was in my wife's calendar. My wife scheduled a massage. If you think my wife scheduled a massage with an underage uh, uh, sex slave, and then you'll believe anything. No, other other calendar other calendar entries. Let me finish. Guys, clarify that other calendar entries had a collective. Let me finish. Go ahead. I was a visiting scholar at NYU. My wife had a professional masseuse. We have checks, canceled checks, proving that the massage occurred, when it occurred, who it occurred with, and um, I've had very very few massages in in my life. One at Jeffrey Epstein's house by a, a middle-aged uh, woman who gave me a shoulder and neck massage, which I hated, 
I called up my wife and complained about it immediately. No, I've done nothing wrong. If you want to put me on trial here, you have to give me an opportunity to fully yeah. explain. You will not be able to make just charges against me without you, giving you me an opportunity. You had a massage at Jeffrey Epstein's Go ahead. house. You, do you, yeah. Do you know who it was who performed that? Yes. I mean, we know what approximately who it was. There were a lot of people around her. Her. We we think we remember, and the, uh, the person who was in charge of the Epstein house. Uh, confirm this that it's a woman named Olga who was in her 40s and was a professional uh, massage therapist. I had a neck and back problem at the time, and I had a massage. My wife had a massage, mm -hmm. <clears throat> my daughter had a massage. Um, my grandchildren stayed in Jeffrey Epstein's house when he was away. Um, and if any of those uh, allegations are true, do you think I would allow my grandchildren, my daughter, my son? It's absurd, and it will be proved the trial. But if you want to accuse me, I must have every opportunity to respond. Go ahead. Well, so yeah, the, the the Miami Herald reported that the non-prosecution deal, like, again, I don't think you'll find us questioning John Adams' decision to defend uh, the British and the Boston Massacre. You, you I think would, we're all you on would the have, same. You would have if you were here today. I don't I think you know that, sir, but I, I think we're all on the same page as you. I wish the ACLU were what it used like to be. It. The Miami Herald reported that the non-prosecution deal that you helped secure, it was your job to do this, essentially shut down an ongoing FBI probe into whether there were more victims and other powerful people who took part into Eps in Epstein's sex crimes. Was that your goal? Does that not suggest you knew that other accusers and perpetrators were out there if you secured a non-prosecution deal that was, from the perspective of a lawyer, great work. Right? This, is, this is doing your client. Um, this is exactly what you would want to do for your client as a lawyer. Um, but does it suggest that a deal that's that strong, you didn't know that there would be other people down the road? The, people, the other people down the road were three women who worked for Jeffrey Epstein. They were named in the original letter. We know who they are. And uh, the, the investigation didn't end. It continued. And it culminated, obviously, in his indictment in New York and his, his suicide. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein thought I did a terrible job for him. He fired me, refused to pay my fee. And uh, we did, didn't get along. He, he thought we could have gotten a better deal. I thought we got a pretty good deal. That's my job to get a pretty good deal. Um, yes, I plead guilty to getting him a good deal. I've gotten good deals for um, many people, many people who've committed far worse crimes. I've saved people from the death penalty. I've saved people from life imprisonment. Uh, that's been my job. I probably have one of the best records of any uh, criminal appellate lawyer in modern history. I'm very proud of the work I've done, and I've represented some of the people who are most hated in America. That's my job. That's what Abraham Lincoln did. That's what Daniel Webster did. That's what Thurgood Marshall did. That's what Ed Bennett Williams did. And that's what I did to great praise until I defended Donald Trump. By the way, the Epstein thing got me no cancellations uh, on Martha's Vineyard, for example. It was only the that's Trump thing. That's a great thing. point. Um, hmm? That's a great point. That's an excellent point. Go ahead. Yeah, do you think yes, I, ask me any hard questions? I've not refused to answer a single question because right. I have absolutely nothing to hide. I want every document revealed in the Epstein case. My false accusers and their lawyers want to hide everything. There are depositions that should be made public that are uh, you'll have to make your own judgment about them. But uh, there are good reasons why the other side wants to keep them secret. Ultimately, they'll all come out and they will all exculpate me. I am 100% innocent of any possible charges. I have you, never had sex with anybody other than my wife during the relevant period of time. We've just celebrated our 36th wedding anniversary. 
I love my wife. I'm very proud of her. Epstein knew that. He would never in a trillion years have suggested that I do anything improper and violate my wife's trust in me. Do you think he actually did um, kill himself? Or, and is there any chance he was an asset for law enforcement or national security? And that's why it's so difficult. He was so protected. It's been so hard to hold all these people, well, famous I, rich people I, I accountable who've been associated with him. I, I think I know for relative certain that he was not an asset. He was certainly not an Israeli intelligence asset. I don't think he was an American intelligence asset. I think he probably committed suicide, but I think he probably got some assistance in doing so. Uh, there were too many coincidences about uh, videos being shut off. So um, I, I'm not sure. I had very little contact with him uh, after the time I represented him. That is the last, what, 10 or 12 years of his life. So um, we had very little contact. Um, he didn't like me. Uh, he didn't think I did a good job. And, uh, um, you know, what, what he did uh, is is something that that uh, evidence will have to show, but I don't have any special any special evidence. I do know that he was a hedonist, and the idea of him spending the rest of his life behind bars is probably not something that he was uh, prepared to face. So he certainly had a motive to commit suicide. And so your your new book is you know, highly critical of cancel culture. It praises people who stand up on principle. And in that context, I wanted to ask you about your own kind of leading of a cancellation. If, if you, 2005 to 2007, you had this high profile fight with, a, with another academic, Norm Finkelstein. Uh, he's you, not an you, academic. He's, you, not, well, an academic. he's not an academic because yeah. you successfully blocked him from getting tenure. No, I, I, I had nothing to do with it. Let me tell you, you sent exactly. A, you sent a letter to the university urging he, them not to give you tenure. No, no. They solicited a letter from me. That happens all the time. We're always, what happened is he wrote a book attacking me. He called my book, The Case for Israel, a fraud. He said it was written by the Mossad. And so the university wrote to me and asked me to give my assessment about his academic credibility. And as I've done a hundred times for other people, I wrote a scholarly letter assessing his credibility. They then made a decision based on a range of factors. In fact, they told me my letter played very, very little role. I'm very pleased for the fact that he was denied tenure. He didn't deserve tenure. He was not a serious academic. He was a, a polemical, radical extremist who hadn't written any serious books. His books were panned uh, by the New York Times called terrible, terrible books. And so, again, I'm proud of the role I played in the Norman Finkelstein uh, case. And I would continue to play roles like that as an academic. I would give a fair and honest assessment. I obviously exposed in the letter my own point of view, knowing that I was one of the people that was attacked. But he accused me of the case for Israel, which was a major bestseller and an important book. He accused me of having had it ghostwritten by the Mossad. I mean, that kind of allegation and charge is not consistent with tenure at a major university. But your, your letter was reviewed by the tenure committee, and the tenure committee as still voted. As were hundreds of other, as were right, hundreds. And the of tenure other committee still voted to give him tenure. It was only then at the higher level, at the administrative, more political level, uh, that by a single vote he I, was. I don't he was know why you say at the more political level. It was the academic level. It was an academic decision not to give him tenure. Giving him tenure would have been a really bad decision, based on his scholarship. I urge you to read his book. Sure. Read so, the reviews of his books. Nobody with books like that and reviews like that would ever get tenure at a major university. It would just be unthinkable. In, in general, there's a sense among a lot of people th that the most vocal critics of cancel culture are willing to make an exception for I advocates no of Palestinian rights. 
that it, that if, I make that if no you... exceptions for Palestinian rights. I when when Yasser Arafat died, Palestinian students came to me and asked me to represent them in an effort to fly the Palestinian flag uh, at Harvard. I said I would, and I said I would attend the event. Let them fly the Palestinian flag. I handed out a leaflet about Yasser Arafat's crimes and let people judge for themselves. Uh, I don't apply a different standard to the Palestinians. I believe in the two-state solution. I believe in a Palestinian state, uh, disarmed, unable to make attacks on Israel. I've always regarded myself as pro-Israel, pro-Palestine. I make no exceptions whatsoever. Something really interesting you said earlier about you weren't canceled on Martha's Vineyard until you defended right. Trump. And I want to pick up on that point as we sort of wrap up, because it's interesting. Earlier, you also said uh, at the time when you were, you know, it, when you were involved with Jeffrey Epstein um, professionally, socially, in different ways, you saw he had all of these powerful acquaintances, um, all of these people, you know, the, the, all of the, the powerful scientists, the Steven Pinkers of the world, Bill Gates, people had sort of flocked to Jeffrey Epstein because he was seen Steve as Pinker, a benefactor. Steve Pinker didn't like him. He never got along with him. Sure, but it's still people affiliating with, with Jeffrey Epstein. Well, we, went to, we all went to seminars that were conducted at the Harvard, um, at Harvard University. Sure. Um, there were like 12, 15 people going to these seminars, including the president of the university and Nobel Prize winners. Right. That's exactly uh, my point. I look forward to these seminars. They were very, very thoughtful and enjoyable. That's I exactly actually, my point. Yeah. yeah that, so it, it's interesting then that part of what allowed Epstein to fly under the radars of people who were affiliating with him was those powerful affiliations with others. It was the fact how, how that was he that, was running in elite fly circles. Under the radar? That would put him over the radar. His and affiliation yet it with others. It didn't. It didn't. Look, he was affiliated with Bill Clinton very closely. He flew Bill Clinton around the world. Nobody knew about this. It wasn't that he was able to fly under the radar because people like Bill Clinton Bill Clinton is pictured getting a massage from a Nobody young knew. woman. <laughs> I mean, Bill Clinton, if Bill Clinton didn't know the extent of it, I'm open to that idea, but Bill Clinton has pictured himself getting a massage from a woman who sure looks underage, and if she's not, she's certainly close to it. But I the never point heard about is... That. I never heard about that. I can tell you that yeah. I was at Caroline Kennedy's house having dinner with Bill Clinton uh, when he was president, <clears throat> and a phone call came in, it was Jeffrey Epstein. And he was on the phone with Epstein at uh, Caroline Kennedy's house for about, I don't know, 20 minutes. Uh, a lot of people were affiliating with Epstein because of his charitable contributions and his academic work, but nobody, as far as I know, knew about this. Um, you know, again, the same woman accused Al Gore <clears throat> of being on Epstein's island. We now have categorical evidence he wasn't. Uh, she also right. said that uh, Bill Clinton was on the island having dinner with underage girls and, and that he was flown there by Ghislaine Maxwell, who had just gotten a pilot's license, as if the Secret Service would ever allow a president or a former president to fly with a recent notice. license. Pretty, hmm? still Say pretty... it again? Okay, so... It... If some of it is not true, it, but it's still incredible for a lot of us that he had this level of access to so, so many famous people, powerful people, to the president right. of the and United States. And it was States. all cut off the minute he was accused. As soon as he was accused, almost everybody cut off their relations because they didn't know. Um, you know, you could say the you same thing. You still went to his house so after many... he got out of prison. Say it again. You, you did still provide legal advice. You went to his of mansion I, oh, I, after, I after he got out of prison. 
if I got a call from him from hell today, I would still provide legal advice. I'm obligated to. I was his lawyer. The legal advice I provided had to do solely with the deal that was made and the implications of the deal. I'm sorry, I'm not like right. a doctor that makes sense. in Cambridge who walked away from patients in the middle of an operation. That's not the way I practice mm. law, on, on the, and that's not the way yeah. any decent person practices law. On the point about nobody knowing, nobody having an idea, Donald Trump, right. and Donald Trump in an interview, what, in the 1990s, I think it was in Vanity Fair, said, oh, yeah, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, he really likes young girls. Like, like some on no, the younger I think side. He likes them on the younger side. This was, this was side. No, I'm sure that's right. I'm sure Donald Trump saw him with, uh, with people on the young side, people in their 20s. When he came to my house for the first time, he was introduced to me by the lady Lynn Rothschild, a very eminent, prominent person. Um, he came to the house and he was with, a, uh, I think, a 28 or 29 year old woman. My wife commented, boy, she's really young. And yes, he did uh, associate with women in their 20s. One of them was a Harvard uh, Business School student. His father owned a bank in Germany. Yes, that was his reputation. But nobody knew, nobody that I know knew that he associated with people in their teens. If I had ever seen that ever. I would have not only walked out, I would have called the police because that wouldn't be lawyer client privilege. I never would have seen him again. And I'm sure that's true I don't of know, many other Donald people. Who I can yeah. speak for if myself. Donald Trump yeah. is defining the younger side, I would think that's teens. Like Donald, for Donald Trump, 20s is. That's, well, let's talk to him about that. Yeah. I, you know, obviously wasn't aware well, you, of that. Have you, talked to, yeah, have have you, you ever that. talked to Donald Trump uh, since you defended him against the impeachment charges, which I agreed were insane? Um, have you ever talked to him about Epstein? certainly not since that time. I spoke to him about Epstein one time um, just when he was um, uh, uh, being investigated or something. And it was a, a non, it was just, how's Epstein doing? And I said, I don't know. I haven't seen him in a long time. Interesting. That was the only conversation I had with him. Interesting. Well, Professor Dershowitz, thank you for your time. Thank you for your candor. Thank you for answering our questions. Well, thank you for your hard questions. I enjoy hard questions because I have nothing to hide. I've never refused to answer a question. Now I wish you'd have Virginia Gouffre or, or, or David Boyce on your program and ask them. We'd love to have them on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. ask them and ask them why they're not revealing the affidavit, the, why, the, why they're hiding her deposition. Ask why they're hiding her, her deposition, why they're hiding other documents, why they're refusing to put them forward. You know, we, most of us on, on our side, on the, on the civil liberty side, want to see transparency. I want to see transparency uh, on the affidavit for the Mar-a-Lago search, and I want to see transparency in the Epstein case. I want to see everything come out, because I'm not afraid of the truth coming out. I said from day one, I hope there are videotapes. I hope every aspect of of uh, Epstein's life was videotaped. I hope the government has videotapes of every sexual encounter that was ever performed in Epstein's house. All of that would vindicate me. I want the truth to come out. That's why I'm willing to be on your show and answer any questions about any subject. Well, the book is The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. Alan Dershowitz, thank you so much. Thank you. We'll have more rising right after this. Journalist and founder of The Lever, David Sirota, is here to discuss some of his latest work. Welcome, David. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Of course. Now, according to CNBC, the cost of the president's student debt cancellation plan may cost taxpayers an average of $2,000. David, what's your reaction to the CNBC estimate? What should, uh, how should people be thinking about some of those numbers? Well, I think we need to put them in context. I mean, the estimates I've seen about $300 billion to $400 billion on student debt relief. And I think the context of that, and I know the White House has been kind of hammering away at this, is the, is the comparison with the uh, Paycheck Protection Program, which was a similar debt forgiveness program, which cost about $800 billion. Uh, look, I think the PPP program was a useful program uh, that floated businesses through the uh, pandemic. Uh, and I think the forgiveness of that debt was probably good for the economy. But we should be clear that it was a much bigger program uh, and a much more regressive program. The Federal Reserve noted that 72% of the PPP program uh, went to the richest 20% of the country, and only $1 out of every $4 of that program actually made it to workers in the form of wages and benefits. As compared to the student debt relief program, which is about three to four hundred billion dollars, delivering about 60 percent, uh, excuse me, delivering the majority of its benefits to the bottom 60 percent of income earners. I think the comparison is important for us to ask who what is the what are we controversializing? when it comes to who benefits and who doesn't. There wasn't much complaint about the PPP loan forgiveness, even though it was a bigger, more regressive program. Uh, and there is now a kind of, in my view, a kind of media manufactured uh, controversy over a much more progressive uh, debt forgiveness program. Uh, and I think we have to ask, well, is it because the recipients in the PPP program were wealthier business owners primarily, uh, and that the recipients of the student debt relief are primarily uh, individual, uh, lower income, uh, ordinary people? Yeah, I, I do find it interesting the way that there has been so much focus on the question of fairness the past couple of days. Right. And I think it's great yeah. to cent center fairness in all of our conversations, yet you don't see it in these other conversations, whether it's the Bush tax cuts in 2001, 2003, <laughs> or whether it's Donald Trump's tax cuts in, in, in 2017, or, or, or basically any other policy. We analyze those policies based on whether they're going to produce economic growth. Uh, and we, we analyze them based on raw political power, like Bush won the White House, uh, Trump right. won the White House. And, you know, as Mitch McConnell says, elections have consequences. You know, they, they won, they're going, to, they're going to deliver for their base, and a $2 trillion tax cut is coming. So we understand power politics. Like, we, we understand constituencies. Yet it's only in this, this situation that all of a sudden, even though this was litigated in the campaign, even though Biden ran on this and said he was going to do it, and the American people voted him into office, and now he's doing it, we have to relitigate the fairness of it. Which is <laughs> it's a really good yeah. it's a really good point, and and some of the hypocrisy is just kind of shocking. I mean, I, I saw la yesterday uh, as an example Senator John Thune from South Dakota uh, sort of making the Republican argument that uh, this isn't it's fair to to working class people. It's a it's essentially a giveaway to a, a small segment of the population. I mean, I, I single him out because literally less than three weeks ago. John Thune put an amendment on the floor of the Senate that was passed to give a special $35 billion tax break to a handful of private equity moguls, and it passed into law. I mean, that happened 
less than three weeks ago. He was the author of that amendment. So you're right. The, the selective conversation that we're having on fairness really, I think, shows a kind of uh, kind of economic class politics uh, of uh, the media debate of what's considered legitimate and not legitimate. Uh, to put a finer point on it, when the government is fulfilling a promise to help working people, uh, to help uh, people who don't have armies of lobbyists in Washington, all of a sudden there's a scandalized debate about fairness. By contrast, when the government is giving, for instance, a $35 billion tax break to a handful of private equity donors, that's barely even in the conversation, much less a controversy. Over at The Lever, you compiled a, a list of you know, Lever articles from the past, um, and I think we have that, where it shows all of the different articles about student debt cancellation that have essentially uh, been part of this, this massive pressure campaign on the Biden administration, which is really interesting because, you know, what is it, like a year ago, both Biden and Nancy Pelosi were questioning the constitutional authority of the president <laughs> to make this move through the Education Department and through executive action. How big a a political win, uh, ironically, since Ryan was just uh, talking about how terribly we talk about horse race politics, which is entirely fair. But the question of uh, the, the momentum that now goes to the left, which has successfully pressured Biden. Um, if you look at how many people ran on Medicare for all in the 2020 primary, there, there have been a lot of successful pressure campaigns. What does this say about the power of the left uh, to pressure the Democratic establishment? Look, it's a, it's a great question, and I think it's great context. This is not a victory of Joe Biden waking up one day and deciding to be a nice guy and fulfill his <laughs> campaign promise. This is a, a, a victory for a massive long-term grassroots pressure campaign that brought enough pressure uh, on a president who at times seemed like he didn't want to fulfill this promise and essentially was uh, forced, shamed, embarrassed, and pressured into fulfilling that promise. And I think we have to understand, go even deeper and understand how ideological Joe Biden has been on the issue of student debt, right? This, this is not just some random issue for Joe Biden. Joe Biden spent about 40 years in the Senate uh, focusing on debt. He was the senator from Delaware. Uh, he pushed and spearheaded policies that made it much harder for students, uh, student debtors to uh, lower their debt, to get out of their debts, for instance, in bankruptcy court in the worst cases, right? You're only in bankruptcy court if you really are in a dire straits. And Joe Biden spearheaded the effort to make it much harder for students, uh, student debtors, uh, to, to get any kind of protections in bankruptcy courts. By the way, protections that wealthy people can get all the time. My point in bringing that up is, is that, again, this is not a casual, uh, just run-of-the-mill issue for Joe Biden. He's a guy who was essentially pressured into making a promise on the campaign trail, uh, a guy who wasn't naturally uh, for student debt relief, to say the least, based on his past Senate uh, 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 record, uh, who was then got into office and seemed like he didn't really want to do this. Point being, you're exactly right. This is a success uh, as much for Joe Biden as it is for all of the organizing that went into uh, pressuring and shaming him and ultimately forcing him to do what he promised to do. It does say something really interesting about our politics, and I think, Emily, we, we see this on the right as, as well, that it, in some ways it's interesting to know what a politician thinks in their heart, uh, but it's only interesting insofar as you're 
satisfying your intellectual curiosity. <laughs> like, it doesn't actually say much about what they're going to do when they get into power. So many Republicans who are serving today in the, either the House or the Senate got into politics under a kind of what would you call it, like a you know, proto-Paul Ryan type of politics. Tea Party wave, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. who, who then see, well, the, actually the energy is now around the Trump stuff, so I'm, do, so I'm doing this Trump stuff in, instead. And this seems similar because, like you said, if there's a single senator who could be called kind of the godfather of the student debt crisis, you would <laughs> put that crown on Joe Biden's head. And, Absolutely. Right. And, and specifically on student debt, and like you said, broader on bankruptcy and on debt and on austerity in general. So the fact that with enough pressure, even he can be brought around, even like, like you said, over the past year, he sent a lot of signals that he did not want to do this, didn't think it was legal, and also did not want to do it. Uh, even, you know, asked his education department to come back and study whether or not you know, he has the authority to do this, even though the education department had said multiple times in the past. So we never saw that study. So clearly came back, said, you, you, can, you can do this. Uh, so has, has this, has this you know, shaped your thinking at all about the way that politicians can be pressured to see a reversal so stark? Or uh, is, this what, is this what you should, should expect from an, enough of a pressure campaign? Look, this is this confirms my long term belief that politicians are basically uh, almost amoral uh, inputs into the political system and that it's up to us, the, the collective us, uh, to try to move uh, those uh, politicians and to try to bring enough pressure on them to do uh, to get the results that we want. Uh, so I think Joe Biden is a lot of things. Uh, one thing he does not seem to be uh, is a hardcore ideologue, first and foremost. I think he is first and foremost a quintessential politician, almost a thumb in the wind politician. And frankly, in, in a sense, I think there's something healthy about this in this way. That Democrats, I think, have, have gotten uh, presidents uh, who the Democratic base has kind of worshipped cult of personality style. I mean, that, that kind of thing is happening mm -hmm. in the Republicans with, with Donald Trump as well. Uh, and that Joe Biden is kind of different. Joe Biden is kind of a run-of-the-mill politician who not a lot of people uh, have a deep uh, sort of uh, uh, abiding loyalty to because they're such a charismatic uh, singular figure like an Obama or even a Bill Clinton, right? And I think that creates the dynamic where more pressure can be brought on a president like that because there's less personal affinity. And that's actually how it's supposed to work. We're not supposed to worship our politicians as these kind of iconic deities. We're supposed to see them as just basically inputs into a machine. And I think that allowed enough pressure, uh, enough um, shaming, enough embarrassing, enough pushing on Biden to actually get him to do what he promised to do. And, and I think what really worked about it is, is that Biden himself again, is not really an ideologue first and foremost. I mean, he has got some, you know, austerity ideologies probably in his head. We've seen that in his behavior. But he's a guy who, who reflects where he thinks the political center is. And effectively, I think the movement to pressure him on, on, on student debt uh, brought the center uh, and brought his perception of where the center is to what he did just now. And that's the yeah. theme of Joe Biden as the Meryl Streep character and don't look up. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> he needs a pantsuit. Yeah, and, and so that's a really key point because during the Obama years, there were some of us, you, me, and a, and a handful of others who were able to publicly uh, criticize Obama 
you know, from, from the very beginning, but outside of that a kind of a small group, you, you were ostracized if, right. you know, from the kind of progressive movement, if you said anything negative about President Biden. How, Bernie Sanders. I mean, President, President Obama. Yeah. Uh, like, how, like, how dare you? How could you say this about you know, the hope and change man? And as a result, then he's just left to his, his own devices. So I think it's a great point. Here's two weak presidents. Yeah. <laughs> weak presidents exactly. and a strong public. Exactly. Right. We, we, yeah. Weak president, or not even weak, I guess it's like presidents who aren't seen as iconic, celebrity, right. uh, charismatic, uh, who build this sort of personal affinity with voters regardless of what they do. That's not a good trend. This is a better trend. A right. president that we see as just basically an administrator who we have to push. It might also be the last one of these that we ever get for we'll foreseeable future because right. we're we'll headed see. in the other direction. Yeah, but. President Oprah. Uh, David Sirota, thank you so much for your time. Thanks to both of you. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. The United States has reportedly launched two airstrikes against Iranian-backed forces in Syria. According to the U.S. Central Command, CENTCOM forces responded to attempted coordinated rocket attacks and killed two or three suspected Iran-backed militants during a U.S. helicopter attack. Just this week, the State Department announced it had submitted a formal reply to Iran over restoration of the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. And while some are lauding Biden over this revival, Israeli officials are warning the U.S. against negotiations. One of the biggest concerns for Israel, according to Axios, is that the U.S. would press the International Atomic Energy Agency to close its investigations into Iran's undeclared nuclear activity. Professor at Georgetown University and author of Losing an enemy, Trita Parsi is, Parsi is here to weigh in. Trita, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, so let's start with that question of Israel's claims about the investigations. Um, what what uh, likelihood do you assign to the possibility of what they're saying, that these investigations go away if the deal is restored? Uh, zero. These investigations will go away once the Iranians have responded to the questions that the IEA has. Most of the problem lies in what Iran did more than 20 years ago. And as a result, naturally, if there's a way to prevent the Iranians from having a nuclear bomb, that's going to be more important than uh, allowing something that happened 20 years ago to kick up a new crisis. Having said that, it's not going to be put to rest unless the Iranians give satisfactory answers to the IEA, as they did back in 2015, when a similar issue arose. And they had to answer those questions before the IEA was satisfied, and they did. Uh, and this time around, there's new information because the Israelis managed to get into uh, one of the warehouses where the Iranians were keeping some of those secrets. All that did, though, is that it confirmed what we already knew, but added a bit more detail. There's nothing in what has been released by the Israelis that is actually changing the picture in any way, shape, or form, except for adding a bit more detail. And so because this, these negotiations around this deal involve basically all of the world's most sophisticated in, intelligence agencies, uh, and, and because you have a kind of, and you could describe it better, but you know, an, an Iranian regime that's, whose intelligence operations are kind of disaggregated into a, into a lot of uh, di different actors around the world who have some autonomy, uh, but, you know, but, are, but are also guided by a general you know, idea of which direction they're heading, that leads to an intense amount of speculation around the world about uh, how we can read the tea leaves of different 
events. And without, without sounding too crazy, I wanted to ask you about a, a bunch of the different reports that we've been seeing around the world of Iranian dissidents um, either, either coming under attack or actually being attacked. I mean, Salman Rushdie, obviously the biggest example here in the United States, but you've had a number of others in Europe and else, elsewhere around the world you know, who have uh, been victims of, uh, or there have been foiled attempts to come after them. And you have two people, you have two camps, one camp saying this is, this is obviously done by Iran, these are Iranian dissidents. Then you have another camp that says, no, actually, these are, these are Israeli uh, operations that are being done because we're getting so close to a deal being struck between all of these entities that are trying to blow it up, which, you know, is, it, it sounds crazy. Israel has, Israel's intelligence for, uh, apparatus has done this type of thing before. That's, that's, that's not controversial. The question is, is it happening now? What's, what's your read on uh, the, the, these different incidents going on around the world? There's a third possibility to what you said, which is that it may be something completely different. Um, I, you know, there's a history of the Iranian regime targeting dissidents uh, abroad in Europe, uh, in the United States as well. So, A, that is a precedent. It has existed and in many different uh, cases that have been um, uh, taking place in the last couple of years. There's definitely a strong plausibility that the Iranians are behind it. The idea that the Israelis would be behind it, I'm a bit more skeptical to, uh, towards uh, the Israelis have done a lot of assassinations inside of Europe. Uh, and if they want to do something to scuttle the talks, it's actually more effective for them, they think, to target the Iranian program, create mayhem, suspicion inside of Iran, getting parts of the regime to think that other parts of the regime may be working with the Israelis, et cetera, et cetera, than to target some uh, dissident uh, in the United States or in Europe. But there's also the third possibility that in some of these cases it may not have been any of these different. There's been plenty of accusations that have been thrown around in previous cases and turn out that it was none of these two different actors. Right. Well, State Department spokesperson Ned Price had this to say about the deal. Let's take a listen to that. Well, again, it's quite simple. We wouldn't trust Iran. Uh, this is a deal that is predicated uh, on the most rigorous, uh, the most restrictive and intensive verification and monitoring regime ever negotiated. This would be about IAEA inspectors on the ground uh, able to look at sites that were of interest. This would be about uh, monitoring cameras, other technology uh, that would see to it uh, that, Iran, that Iran was living up to uh, its side of the deal. If Iran if we were to get back into this deal and if Iran were to attempt to violate it, we would know that and we would be able to respond accordingly. So negotiations over both the first JCPOA and this um, have happened in interesting contexts regarding our relationship with Russia. Uh, and I'm curious, Trita, because there Ned Price said, you know, this isn't about trusting the Iranians. Um, we're also using essentially Russia as an intermediary in this case. Um, and the relationship between the United States and Russia right now, as it was uh, back in 2015, is in an interesting place. Um, what do we know about how that relationship could affect, uh, you know, everything that hasn't, some experts, I've heard them say something that makes a lot of sense to me. Everything that remains on the table that remains to actually be hammered out as a deal is there for a reason because it's really freaking hard to finish these last questions. These final questions remain for a reason. What do we know about how our relationship with Russia right now amid the ground war in Ukraine um, could affect these very fragile negotiations in the coming days? So I wouldn't characterize it as the United States using Russia as a mediator. You're absolutely correct that in the previous round of negotiations, the Russians, the Chinese, the Europeans all were on board, and it was very critical to have 
uh, a united front between these countries versus Iran in the negotiations. And frankly, the Russians back then were very, very useful. This time around, it's different because as you pointed out correctly, U.S.-Russia relations are in a very different place now compared to 2015. What has happened since the invasion of Ukraine is that the European mediators, they're the ones that actually are mediators, they have essentially gone back and forth between the United States and Iran and not involved the Russians until some form of an agreement has first been hammered out by the Iranians and the, uh, the Americans in order to avoid the possibility or the risk that the Russians would do something to stop them. Moreover, in previous rounds, the Russians played an important role in the sense that some of Iran's low enriched uranium needed to be shipped out to Russia. Those things are not part of this agreement this time around, as I understand. And what's your read on how close we are? Do you expect an announcement soon? Are we, are we like, if, if you heard this afternoon that a deal had been struck, would that be shocking to you? Or are we that close? We are closer than we ever have been since this strategy of negotiation started. I personally believe that the Biden administration should have just gone back in through an executive order uh, on day one or on week one, as he did with Paris Agreement, as he did with WHO. But they chose this negotiated path. And in that path, this is the closest we have been. And uh, uh, the ball is back in Iran's court because the United States responded about two days ago. And the Iranians may take a couple of more days, but I would be surprised if this were to take more than another two weeks, because at that point, the likelihood of the deal actually being able to be finished because of the American political calendar actually goes down. And hopefully the Iranians are well aware of that. Mm, that's a great point. Trita Parsi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We'll have more rising for you right after this. K-12 education reporter at the Columbus Dispatch, Michael Lee, joins us now to discuss the latest on the, on the teacher strike in Columbus. Michael, welcome to Rising. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so give, give, us a, give us an update. What, what, was, what was this strike about to begin with? Yeah, so uh, just for some context, there had been 23 negotiating sessions uh, since March. The uh, Columbus Education Association, which is the union here in Columbus that represents over 4,500, uh, you know, teachers, school nurses, support staff, and et cetera, you know, uh, they had essentially been asking for a lot of, um, you know, for, for example, just some things, uh, you know, uh, HVAC systems to be upgraded and updated, uh, smaller class sizes, more planning time for teachers. Uh, and, and there are a few other kind of talking points as well of, you know, what they wanted in their new contract. Um, and so, you know, this had gone on for a while. And, um, you know, last month in July, uh, they had essentially the board board of education here in columbus had given the union its you know first final offer and, and i say first because we're going to get to some other things but um you know the first final offer on july 28th in a in, uh, you know in a negotiation session that you know the union claim lasted you know one minute and um because of that and they had no more uh they had no more sessions scheduled in august as well and so you know kind of the timeline here was on august 4th the union members had uh come they had met together and they had voted to you know suggest 
the, to their uh, legislative assembly to issue a 10 day notice of the union's intent to strike. And then, um, you know, seven days later, they filed that intent to strike, no, that notice to intent to strike. Um, and then, um, you know, as we all know, they voted on Sunday night, um, August 21st, to officially start striking this week, which is, uh, you know, the first week of classes. So. And, and so how did this end up um, where it is right now? Like, what, what were the big points that the, the pivotal, uh, I guess, sort of points in these negotiations? Yeah. So the union has, you know, kind of repeatedly told us that, uh, you know, again, with those, you know, there are a handful of schools here that don't necessarily have uh, HVAC systems. So that's heating and cooling, whatnot, um, you know, upgraded or fully upgraded. Uh, and so one of the biggest things, you know, we had heard from the union was that they wanted this, you know, guarantee in writing, you know, the district had mentioned that, you know, they were using COVID relief funds, ESSER funds to, um, you know, upgrade these HVAC buildings. And it was kind of a separate thing, but the union was, you know, had, had been saying, you know, we want this in writing. And, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, we want guarantees on. And so there was that as well as, you know, smaller class sizes specifically. And, um, you know, the district had um, last week had gave the the union a kind of what what I, you know what they were calling the final final like you know their their second final offer right um, and so this was you know they had mentioned that you know they would cap the cap the class sizes at 28 and eventually reduce that size to 27 um, and you know other things as well right more planning time for teachers and then you know in the in the district's final offer last week you know they had talked about um, you know, that they were uh, going to give teachers essentially a day, an extra day of planning. Um, and then also, you know, uh, just just other essentially other ways as well to, you know, retain teachers in the district. Uh, that was another huge sticking point. So His, historically, when teachers have gone on strike, they've they've often had significant support from the community, whether it's Columbus or or, or elsewhere, even though, you know, it really inconveniences people in the community, but there's a sense of solid, there had for generations been this kind of sense of solidarity between the community and, and their teachers. And I'm wondering if that was frayed by COVID at all. I'm, wonder, I'm wondering how the community responded to this, this teacher strike compared to how they might have, say, you know, five or 10 years ago. Yeah, you know, we can't say exactly for sure, you know, what the effects of COVID specifically are, but, you know, talking to teachers, you know, me and my colleagues, uh, you know, we had, you know, gone to the picket lines, talked to teachers, talked to parents over the phone, you know, in, in speaking to parents about this, you know, a lot of them had, you know, talked about, you know, not crossing the virtual picket line, right? And the district had, you know, so Wednesday was specifically Wednesday was the first day of classes for Columbus City Schools for uh, most of their schools. Uh, their kindergarten starts next week, if I remember correctly. Uh, and they also have a year round school that began in July. Um, but, uh, you know, on the first day of classes, we went out to the picket lines. We, we spoke to parents on the phone, you know, about, you know, this the support they were having for their teachers. And, you know, a lot of students came out that day, you know, uh, parents we talked to. Obviously, again, like I mentioned, part of it was, you know, they didn't want to cross this virtual picket line to support their teachers, but other parents we spoke to, they were kind of just exhausted with remote learning and they felt that the quality of education that, and, and this actually included parents that still logged their kids on Wednesday morning as well, which was, you know, they were saying uh, in our reporting that, um, you know, 
a lot of this was, you know, like, like I mentioned, they're just kind of exhaustive from remote learning, right? And they felt the quality of education wasn't as good as maybe even being in the classroom specifically, but, you know, even, you know, kids we spoke to, elementary schoolers, high schoolers, um, you know, one of the things that was was important to them was just being in a room with their teachers. And, you know, they, I, I remember one of the kids, you know, he, he went out to the picket lines because he simply just, you know, he loves the teachers and, and they want to support the teachers. And that's what, you know, what we were hearing as well. Well, yeah, and on that broader question, how did, as you watched the pandemic play out, uh, how, how did the changes to education affect the relationship uh, between parents and teachers, parents and the school district? Obviously, that's a really fraught issue uh, all over the country, but particularly in Columbus with the school system, how did it affect those relationships? Yeah, and, and I, I think, you know, it definitely did, again, talking to parents, right? And, and again, circling back to this whole, you know, a lot of this, a lot of students had gone through remote learning and, you know, wanted to be with their teachers. And, you know, a, a couple students that we had spoken to as well, um, you know, they had talked about how, you know, especially seniors this year, there were, I spoke to one senior uh, or in a parent of a senior as well, who, you know, they were worried about this strike going on uh, because they didn't have, you know, they've essentially had a few years of that disruption, right, with COVID, you know, you know, and and remote learning then, and hybrid learning, and then now, you know, uh, you know, at, at the time, the possibility of the strike going longer than obviously it did, but you know, it was kind of that that worry that you know they wouldn't be able to be with their teachers, they wouldn't be able to be with their you know classmates again, you know, like in the past few years where it was kind of you know, either, again, online completely or on and off in, in the hybrid learning model. Right, yeah, it's been, it has been a rough ride for sure. Uh, Michael, thanks, thanks for joining us and thanks for your, your reporting. Thank you again for having me. And we will have more Rising right after this. guys handle things when they're a, a big news item that's controversial? Like there was a lot of attention on Twitter during the election because of the Hunter Biden laptop story, the New York Post. Yeah, we Post. Had that too. Yeah, so you guys censored that as well? So we took a different path than Twitter. Um, I mean, basically the background here is the FBI, I think, basically came to us, uh, some, some folks on our team, and was like, hey, um, just so you know, like, you should be on high alert. There was, the, we, we thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump of, of, um, uh, of that's similar to that. So just be vigilant. So our protocol is different from Twitter's. What Twitter did is they said, you can't share this at all. Um, we didn't do that. What, what we do is we have, um, if something is reported to us as potentially um, misinformation, important misinformation, we, we also have this third-party fact-checking program because we don't want to be deciding what's true and false. And for the... I think it was five or seven days when it was basically being um, being determined whether it was false. Um, the distribution on Facebook was decreased, but people were still allowed to share it. So you could still share it. You could still consume it. So when um, you say the distribution is decreased, in, it, it got shared. It, how does that work? It basically the ranking in newsfeed was a little bit less. So fewer people saw it than would have otherwise. So it definitely by what percentage? I, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's 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 meaningful. But I mean, but basically, a um, a lot of people are still able to share it. 
we got a lot of complaints that that was the case. Um, you know, obviously this is a hyper political issue. So depending on what side of the political spectrum, you either think we didn't censor it enough or censored it way too much. But right. but we weren't sort of as black and white about it as, as Twitter. We just kind of thought, hey, look, if, if the FBI, which you know, I still view as a legitimate institution in this country, it's a very professional law enforcement. They come to us and tell us that we need to be on guard about something then I want to take that seriously. Did they specifically say you need to be on guard about that story? I, I no, I, I don't remember if it was that specifically, but it was. It basically fit the pattern. That is the important question, right. exactly. Uh, because if the FBI did in fact go to Mark Zuckerberg and say this is Russian disinformation, you have the FBI essentially being involved in the election outcome. Which you can go back to Comey and Hillary Clinton or whatever. But the suppression of information—that's taking to another level. Um, a private company complying with the FBI's request to su suppress information—I think is uh, pretty nuts. And from Zuckerberg answer there, it's really not clear what happened. Right, he says no, and then he's like, I'm not sure exactly. So we need a clear answer on that. He needs, let's produce the emails from the FBI. What did they say? Did they say, it sounded like they said there was going to be a bunch of misinformation, and here's the pattern that it's going to be. And then they saw this and said, this sounds like it fits the pattern. And then you had national security officials publicly saying this is Russian disinformation, so that, that connects those two dots right there. But it's, the whole thing is creepy. Um, and you know, we, we were talking earlier about this, this, this French example where uh, not this most recent election, but the previous one, uh, Russia hacked, I believe it was a bunch of Macron emails, but it's, it, it was emails related to Macron if it wasn't Macron's own emails. And, dump, and dumped them into the French right. uh, media and, and social media ecosystem. And there's really no, I don't think there's anybody that's seriously disputing whether or not Russia was the one behind this or why they did it. The, we, we, we're the only country in the world with a First Amendment. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, so France does not have a First Amendment, which means they can have laws about what you can and cannot say. Oh, Prince and, Harry has been like, what is this First Amendment? Is this First thing? Amendment? Yeah, and he's like on the board of the Aspen Institute's like yes. speech. It, it is I don't think we I don't think we recognize in the United States what a what a treasure it is. Uh, absolutely. Because we just assume that it's a, a natural part of society, but it's not. It absolutely is not. Right. Um, every, basically every other government you know, has, you know, constricts speech in a much more significant way. And so they said in the lead up in the last couple of weeks of that election, uh, you can't, they also have weird laws about like you can't post polls, mm -hmm. like you can't have polls in like the last three days and things like that. Uh, and so French media wouldn't touch it, was basically banned from doing so, and social media didn't touch it. And so it, the, the, and it was celebrated by a lot of people as a successful counter to Russia's attempt to meddle uh, in, in that election, but also has you know deeply disturbing implications, right? Because what if it you know it it was tr like there were there were real things in there that people were denied seeing that okay it's not like everybody has a right to everybody's e email, but once it's public, right? Wouldn't you want to know? Well, and that's the thing. Once it's public, the 
genies out of the bottle. And they, but they successfully kept that genie in the bottle. It was really weird. And the French example is a good one because we were talking earlier about looking back now at Snowden, looking back at Assange, looking back at WikiLeaks, um, looking now at Ashley Biden's diary. The a, a couple just pleaded guilty um, to. Uh, stealing mm -hmm. the diary and giving it to Project Veritas. Um, so according to the New York Times, that proves the diary is real. The diary was largely ignored by most legacy media when it was first reported by Project Veritas. Ashley Biden allegedly Actually, it wrote, wasn't first reported by Project Veritas, right? Uh, maybe it was the New York Times. Somebody else. No, it was another right-wing side. Oh, yeah, post, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, they leaked but, it. Sorry. And James O'Keefe was reportedly very upset that it had leaked. Now, Ashley Biden yeah. allegedly wrote about taking quote, probably not appropriate showers with my dad. Um, listen, like the point of, of bringing this up in the context of the Zuckerberg conversation is that if you want to go for a French model, there is no clear way to know whether any of this is Russian disinformation. The intelligence community signed this letter where you had all of these high profile, in many cases, liars saying the laptop looks like Russian disinformation. Uh, we now know there's good evidence suggesting it wasn't. We still, it's still an open question what happened, um, as it is an open question uh, you know, about other things that have leaked into the public before. Right. You've reported on some of them. You were mentioning whether this is, like, where did this come from? We don't always have a clear answer to that question. And asking the government to take censorship steps uh, when those questions remain open is anti-American. Right. And if you say that we, don't, we won't allow the publication of hacked or stolen documents, like that's a phrase you often see. Yes. Uh, Pentagon papers yeah. were stolen. Yeah. Uh, Edward Snowden's documents were stolen. I think we're all happy to have learned what we learned from WikiLeaks. Right. And th those were either hacked or stolen. Yeah, like, we don't know. Uh, pretty sure. Yeah, it was the phishing email, right? It was the. Right, we don't yeah, know. Like, the, again, right. like the thing is, we don't. The origins of it are not clear enough that we can make a completely right. definitive but, judgment but it's hacked, and say like, censor. Right. Yeah. And then, so then, you, if you give that power um, over to a, a handful of entities they, that don't want, say, the Snowden documents out. Then they can say this is, these are stolen documents. Yeah, exactly. Like and we, they're already weaponizing that right. nonsense. They're already, we saw it happen with the Biden laptop. Um, and that's another part of this conversation about the credibility of the Department of Justice and the FBI. It doesn't just apply to the Mar-a-Lago raid. This is the credibility that comes up. And you have people who are working on the raid who were working on the Russia collusion narrative. Um, when these questions come up and there's no credibility left, and former people from the intelligence community are just like, oh, that laptop that's going to hurt the leading presidential candidate that we want elected over the man that we hate more than anything else. Yeah, that looks like Russian disinformation. You're getting into banana republic, you know, world. Right. And and then you haven't even gotten to the question of actual fake news. Right. Like Trump, Trump appropriated the term fake news from actual Yes, fake the news. real like, fake news stories. Like there was like was Romanian companies and Estonian companies, yeah. and Macedonian companies where you have kids. Some of them were like teenagers. Yeah. Who and there was one that was like made to look like ABC News. Yeah, like Elvis still alive, found in North Carolina. And, and like seventieth uh, murder victim of Hillary Clinton found, yeah. and then yeah. uh, then they and then they put those on Facebook and they. And they were just making money off it. They weren't even trying. Some of the, a lot of those were not even about trying to like monkey with the election. They were just, they knew it would click, and they, right. and they were making money off it. And Facebook was making money off it because they were paying Facebook to spread it. Uh, so yeah, the, 
the whole thing's a mess. It's all a mess. It's all a mess, and we are not equipped to deal with it going into, first of all, in the middle of the midterm cycle, going into a presidential cycle. So that's the yeah. good news that we're leaving you with here on there Rising Fridays. As you know, Ryan and I are sort of eternal optimists, and we like to leave everybody that's um, right. feeling optimistic. Feel good over the weekend. Good. Yeah. yeah, like, happy weekend. Everything is broken, uh, but, you know, enjoy it while you can. Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on that happy note so you never miss any of our optimistic content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're also available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Please make sure to check out the podcast. It's a great way to catch up with Rising Fridays. And on that note, we hope everybody has a great weekend. Yeah. Enjoy yourself this weekend. See you soon. See ya.